most of the ship's company are fast asleep in bed, so there's only a handful of us operating the ship and a handful of us in the sonar control room. Now, if you would... If you've seen um, uh, war films or Navy films, and if you can see, if you think about the image of a Sonos um, control room, it is probably what you're thinking, a very dimly lit room with screens and guys sitting uh, in front of screens with headphones and so forth and communicating um, what they're seeing and hearing. So I was sitting behind what's called uh, an omnidirectional sonar system, which meaning that when the sound wave travels out, it actually does travel out in a 360-degree arc so it goes out omnidirectional and what I'm doing is listening in or listening to the sounds of the ocean and seeing if I can detect anything so uh, when an object is detected uh, I move a little tracker ball which places a circle over the object and then I push what's called an enable button and then the computer takes over and gives all the information that we want which is Doppler, relevant speeds, locations, distances and so forth and that comes up at a big uh, panel in front of us. Now, this is all very antiquated technology now. Modern, again, modern navies don't have such systems, but in those days we did. But that was the height of modernization. So, as I said, it was about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, I detected an object which was deadly, uh, de um, directly astern of us, around about 20 kilometres. Now, I'm going to obviously use kilometres instead of miles, uh, being in New Zealand. Um, so those of you who can convert, uh, be able to work out, it's around about... 15 miles or so behind us. Uh, so I detected an object, which is not uncommon because the sea, the ocean produces a lot of um, sounds which we have to um, try and uh, eliminate what they could be. For example, schools of fish, um, uh, bubbles surfacing, which can cause a returned echo. So we do all of these things to eliminate what we think it could be before we actually establish what it could be. We also have a guy who's sitting next to me in what's called a hydrophone effect sonar, and he's listening to the sounds of, of possible propellers of a, of a submarine. All navies use different types of propellers, and some have three, some have four blades, and some have five. And you can actually um, identify a submarine based upon the sound of the propeller going through this submarine's wake. You record it, you slow it down, you hear the whooshing sound as the blade goes through the wake, and you can determine whether it's a friendly or a, a foe. So he's recording these sounds. Today it would all be done digitally. In those days it was done on a Tascam reel-to-reel. I, uh, an object came up on my sonar, so I moved the tracker ball and I pushed enable and the computer took over. Now, one of the things we're looking for is the size of an object. It's very difficult to determine the size of an object if it's coming directly towards you because it gives a very small echo return. But as we turned, and we did turn backwards and forwards, when we have an object behind or anywhere, we try and see whether or not it's artificial or man-made. So we do a lot of maneuvers, starboard and st um, um, port and starboard, high-speed turns to see if we can sort of, you know, if it's going to follow us. And this object did. As we turned, uh, and this is maybe 10, 15 minutes, by the way, after we detected it, the object turned and gave us a, a, a broadside echo return. And when it did that, we came up with a, a diameter of about 800 feet in length. Now, for those of you who know uh, navies, 
Um, a submarine at 800 feet is unheard of. The, the, the largest submarine at that time, and even now, is the Russian Typhoon class, which comes in at roughly 550 feet in length. So 800 feet was extraordinary, and we had nothing in our databases to identify what that could be. Uh, the other thing is also that was weird was that the fact is it was following us at the same speed as the ship. So we were doing around about 20 knots. This object stayed relevant around about 20 kilometers from us at relevant speed, no matter how fast we moved, it caught up with us. So this went on backwards and forwards for around about 30 to 40 minutes. And then something happened, which was it uh, uh, at a phenomenal speed that no submarine could do. And it went directly underneath the ship itself and went ahead of us. As it went underneath us, the ship completely was drained of all power. So it was like it had emitted an electric magnetic pulse and it had drained the ship completely of all power. Now, when I say drained, I'm talking about everything, including all the backup batteries that would normally switch on if there was a steam turbine failure, which means that the engines shut down, the batteries uh, in through the main drag of the ship or anywhere else would switch on automatically, but they did not because they were drained as well. So suddenly we're sitting in the sonar control room in pitch black, uh, wondering, and there was silence, and nobody moved for some time because we couldn't understand what had actually happened. After a few moments, the senior officer in the control room basically said, everybody out, we're now adrift, and we now have to get out onto the flight deck of the ship because there is the potential that we could run aground if we're near any reefs. But before we did so, we had to go and wake all the ship's company and get them up onto the flight deck. And of course, there's 250 people on this ship and we had to go and wake them all which was obviously something they don't like to be uh, guys don't like to be woken at any time uh, if there's uh, if they're needing some sleep but we had to get them uh, out onto the flight deck and uh, it took us about 15 20 minutes and i will never forget the the image of being on the flight deck because it was probably the most beautiful experience of being out in the Pacific where there was no artificial lights. And I simply remember being on the flight deck and looking up at the stars and never seeing, and I've never seen uh, since, the most remarkable scene of, the, of the, the sky just being silver because we've always seen artificial lights nearby and it can um, uh, dull the, the stars. But when we were out in the Pacific with no lights whatsoever, I just remember looking up and thinking how incredible, the, looking at the Milky Way, it was silver. It was absolutely incredible. But we were adrift for about an hour uh, until eventually the engineers were able to get enough heat in the turbines to start restart the generators, and then we were able to start the engines and uh, get the ship operational again. But that took uh, at least an hour. And then what we had to do was to immediately sail back to New Zealand, back to Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand, and report to the Admiralty. Those guys that were in the control room, which was myself and about another six guys, we were sworn to secrecy. Uh, the rest of the ship's company had no idea what had happened, so they were simply told that there was a main steam turbine uh, generator failure, which is normally when a little bit of seawater can get into the, uh, the turbines and it shuts the engines down, and that's what they were told. Uh, however, the six of us 
uh, including the XO and the, uh, the captain, were the only ones who were aware what had actually happened and we were sworn to secrecy. So there were other details involved in um, what had happened, but Mark, that's succinctly what happened. And for what, what that did for me was it launched me into uh, the next 30-odd years plus of investigation and research into the UFO phenomena. Like many people, I was already a, a fan of UFOs. I was a, a Trekkie and a Star Wars fan. So it didn't take much to nudge me into um, the, the world of research, which I have done, as I say, for so long. And I have met people, I have connected with people globally, including people like Nick Pope, who, uh, if people know that name, he's, he's normally on um, ancient aliens and um, uh, such things, you've, um, uh, MUFON files and all of that. So Nick's quite a well-known person in the area of ufology and is somebody who I've connected with many times. Um, but what it did do, as I said, that experience launched me into um, where I am now over 30 years later, which is what's called the Atlantis Rising Project and the UFO phenomena here in New Zealand, and particularly in the region that I'm in here, which is Canterbury, New Zealand. So there's, there's your opening... Um, there's your opening for you there, Mark. That's, That's okay. Now, I was going to say, some people believe, I know this might be a bit more of a controversial theory, that aliens may be angels, or we received them as angels when they landed. There is that theory around. What do you think of that theory? I think it has um, some great validity. Um, Certainly, uh, if you look at scriptures, it doesn't have to be the, the Bible, it can be the Old Testaments um, as well, the Genesis and so forth. If you compare the stories of angels and visitations, the wheels of Ezekiel, for example, the, the writings of the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and so forth, and you compare the stories and what people have written from ancient times, um, I think certainly there is a, an enormous comparison of evidence that states, yes, angels and extraterrestrials are one of the same thing. Um, cave paintings depict, and we're talking, you go to the Aboriginal cave paintings in Australia that are over 40,000 years old, or cave paintings anywhere in the world, Egyptian hieroglyphs, it is almost impossible not to see uh, hieroglyphs and cave paintings that depict extraterrestrials. And I think any scientist uh, um, who tries to state that they are anything other is really just part of what I think a lot of people would say um, the con either a conspiracy to cover or just pure ignorance um, to, to that fact. So my answer is yes, they are one of the same thing, definitely. I, I, I sort of um, wonder what some other people think that... The, when the, the UFOs come to visit us, it's us developed, highly developed, and we're coming back to visit ourselves to see what where we went wrong in the first place, and then they, we got you know to try and help us back again. Like that's a, that's another theory out there. Yes, um, I, I mean I, I think we've evolved a great deal since a lot of those earlier. Um, what you just said, I remember, I mean, I go back to the, the early 80s where um, information like this was common, that they were coming back to see um, how we've evolved. But in truth, they never left. And there are multiple species of extraterrestrial that live you know, in the oceans. They live uh, within the Earth itself, the subterraneans. 
the moon. Um, the moon itself in itself is a, is a whole subject because many scientists um, will, will tell you that the moon itself is, is strange because A, it's, uh, it's too big for the planet that we are. It doesn't seem. It doesn't seem that it follows. Um, its construction seems strange. It's hollow. It resonates like a bell. When scientists fire um, lasers at it to get a uh, like a, a reading or a bounce back, the moon itself resonates. So it's not a solid object. It is. I mean, this is where you get the hollow moon theory as well. Um, but the latest information in relation to the moon is that it's actually an observation platform, and it has been since its construction. It wasn't the original moon that existed on uh, for the Earth. There was a earlier moon, which was much, much smaller, but that was uh, taken out, and this one was replaced. Um, so even that, as I said, it's, um, most people, will, a lot of people will tell you that it's actually an observation post, and for that very reason, when you look up at the moon, they're looking back at us, and they have done for a long time. So my philosophy is, is that they never actually left and they've always been here, but they're so much more interested in what's happening for us because we're going through this extraordinary change or this evolution of the human consciousness and spirituality, which is why there is, uh, uh, there's been a sort of a quantum leap in spiritual evolution, people coming into metaphysics and spirituality, which was in the old days called New Age Movement. Um, but the evolution of the human person um, is, is of enormous interest to them. So we are encountering them a lot more. They are making themselves known to people a lot more. Um, and so certainly they are here I've had experiences of them myself as I said the one in the Navy was uh, certainly one of the most profound however I have had a couple more including one where uh, I actually uh, when I was living in Nelson uh, which is the top part, uh, top part of the South Island of New Zealand when I lived there I actually met uh, a gentleman who was, as most, if I were to tell you the story of that, you would probably uh, hazard a guess that he was, in fact, an extraterrestrial. So certainly they, they have never left, they have always been here, and we will be seeing a lot more of them in the coming future. Do you think that we, when we, you know, you know when we see all these films about UFO, and um, when the government, uh, do you think they're trying to say to the film producers, Oh, show them what's happening to make sure that we accept them a little bit better. Yeah, it was very interesting you should say that because I was watching a documentary with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and they actually spoke about that, how they, they actually laughed, which was they, they spoke about that theory, uh, that they were prepping us for the eventual um, visitations. And to be honest... Um, when they did or they didn't, they're saying that they didn't do it. They said it was coming from their own imaginations and nobody actually persuaded them. Um, but in fact, it's doing the exact thing. It does prepare us for such things. However, the only person who, the only producer, director actually, who has come forth just prior to his, his death a few years ago was Stanley Kubik. Now, if you know Stanley Kubik's work, which was, of course, 2001, A Space Odyssey, he proclaimed, and it's actually on YouTube, whereas I think it's still on YouTube, a documentary or an interview with him prior to his death, which was made by his wife, where he actually acknowledges that he was responsible for the uh, filming of the NASA moon landing in 1969. And there's another documentary by um, the uh, Nixon's 
entourage, including Kissinger and so forth, who were interviewed stating that they staged the moon landing and that they approached Stanley Kubik because he just he was just in final production of the film 2001. So he had all the props, he had all the moon settings in Pinewood Studios, all set. And so they went over to talk to him to see if they could convince him to film on for them the moon landings, of which he said he did. Now, um, he very much claimed um, that the work that he did on 2001 was part of that um, conditioning to help us to accept what was eventually to come, but he also acknowledged that he was responsible for the moon landing. Um, but uh, Spielberg and Lucas, no, they said that they, the works that they did was purely from their imaginations. Um, I cannot agree or disagree to that. What I do know is that the work that they have done has certainly subconsciously conditioned us to accept more favourably what could happen if there were extraterrestrial visitations in plain sight. So I think that has helped. Whether it was organised or not, I couldn't say. Now, I know that you um, mentioned about Atlantis, and some people out there may not know what Atlantis was because it is a little bit of a forgotten history. It's sort of like said people say, oh, it didn't exist, but I'm a great believer that it did exist. Yes. So you're just cutting in and out there, so I hope I'm not over-talking. Yeah, there's very, very little information about Atlantis. In fact, the, the first stories we ever hear about it is in the Criterious monologues that were written by Plato. And in that, he talks about a technically advanced civilization... Um, and he gives a description of a ringed city. He talks about uh, a uh, tropical climate. He talks about animals that were there, including elephants and so forth. But there is very, very little historical evidence to this extraordinary civilization that has captured the imagination of so many for so, so long. What we do know is that it has been sought, seeked, hunted by the likes of Napoleons, uh, by the Romans and so forth. So we know that there has been enormous interest in this ancient civilization that was extraordinarily advanced in its technology, in its methodologies, in its spiritualisms, but it has been the, the source of, of seeking for so, so long. And I think there's a romanticism about it as well, as it's been depicted in many uh, movies, um, animated movies and so forth. And I think people's imagination is captured by it because it is a place of imagination, of high civilization, of high spiritual um, a peace, and so forth. But of course, it goes into its demise, uh, that it became corrupt, that there was ego, and that eventually it was swallowed up by the ocean. And even location-wise, it has been sought after for so, so long. Uh, some people believe that Atlantis, the location is off the, the west coast of America, uh, in the heart and the center of the Atlantic, within the Mediterranean, um, in the Bermuda Triangle, 
And what I talk to people about, because of course, when I discuss the location of Atlantis, the reason why it can sometimes challenge, and what I say to people is, all those locations that I just spoke about are actually correct. It is, and it was in all those locations. But then it begs the question, well, how can that be? How can it be in so many different areas and so many locations? Well, what I, my answer to that is you only need to go back to some of the great empires of history, the Roman Empire, uh, the Mongolian Empire, um, the, the British Empire. If you think about the British Empire, at the turn of the last century, the British Empire covered over 25% of the globe. And when I say covered, I'm talking about its, its uh, culture, its methodologies, its militaries, its politics, covered 25% of the globe, including the, the, you know, the Canadians, uh, Australasia, the India, Africa, Egypt. Now, if you were a visitor from, from outside of this planet and you visited those countries, you would say that the British Empire existed in that location and in over there and over there. But technically it would be correct because it's, it's, it's the influence of that empire that existed in all those areas. But the empire has a central location and a central location for its culture and a central location for its politic. And in this case, the British Empire existed in England and more more detailed in London but its influence and its culture and its politics covered 25% of the planet the same with the Mongolian Empire which covered China and so forth or the Roman Empire which covered you know throughout the Mediterranean and much of Europe and of course England but the Roman Empire wasn't England it wasn't in the Mediterranean it was in a place well it wasn't the Mediterranean it was in a place in a country called Italy, and more so to Rome. So the Atlantean culture and the Atlantean civilization also covered an enormous amount of the globe. It was a global civilization. So it had locations of its culture in all the different areas that I've just explained before. So its city, its culture, its um, architecture, was all located in different parts of the globe, which is why we have pyramids uh, dotted all over the planet, um, why we have construction techniques that seem to connect and uh, follow the same patterns in different countries. And yet these countries, we are told by scholars, when they were created, never had a connection with other countries. So the answer to that is, is that there was a central location for Atlantis as a political uh, central location, but its culture and its technology and its influence was global. So if I get into now where the location of Atlantis as a physical body is or was, then of course this is where we come to Antarctica. Now. For, for many, many years, I was in, uh, for nearly 30 years, I was in the security industry, and therefore, a lot of my information comes through from that industry, but also due to the connections in the military. Uh, the, I have been the regional and branch manager for some of the largest security companies here in New Zealand, and the um, places that the, the company has looked after 
have or been the security for have been in direct connection to the the U.S. military and the U.S. military and scientific uh, research and connections and work in in Antarctica. So, uh, as that is a premise, the location of Atlantis is Antarctica. But an Antarctica that did not 12,000 years ago exist in the location that it is in now. Now, in the last few years, as the ice has been breaking apart in Antarctica, it has revealed an enormous amount of uh, a, a large number of pyramids. You can go online and you can see images of these. Um, as it revealed, and America, by the way, has the McMurdo base, um, which is one of the prime bases for um, the Atlantis work that's been carried out down there. Um, they have modernized their establishment extraordinarily. They have pumped in hundreds of millions of dollars to increase um, the base there. Um, they have spent a lot of time and money excavating, and they have been bringing back from the the, construct, the sites that they have been um, um, getting into, the pyramids that they've been getting into, they're bringing back the technology that they've brought and they've discovered, and they bring that back ironically, to Christchurch, because they have their Antarctic program base, called Deep Freeze, here in Christchurch, next to our international airport. So they fly in with the C-130s, and then they bring back the technology that they have found there, and it is stored in the hangar that is based here in Christchurch. And the security that I was involved with used to look after that establishment. NASA have their 747s then that come and they park up outside that hangar and they take a lot of that technology back to the States where they then try and work out how it works. But until they do that, it is stored here in Christchurch. So we then have to look at, well, if I'm talking about New Zealand as being the new um, centre of where Atlantis used to be, how could that be? Uh, um, and I'm not certain if you've heard of the name Charles Hapgood, who no, was no. the philosopher and scientist behind the crust displacement theory. Uh, Charles Hapgood in the 1950s was a... Uh, a junior research into geology and so forth. Uh, he wasn't very recognized as being um, anybody of significance in his field of research and was very much um, looked down on and scorned upon when he came out with this revolutionary um, theory of what was called crust displacement, which basically says that the crust itself of the planet slides across and over the mantle of the planet and has many times shifted in directions and locations based upon the movement and the changes of the Earth's magnetic poles. As the poles switch, which they do every between 12 and 15,000 years or more, there is a significant uh, change to the, the planet itself on an energy level, on a magnetic field level, and on a physical level. So Charles Hapgood in the 50s came out with what's called the crust displacement theory. The only scientist or the only person of significance 
who supported his work was Albert Einstein, who absolutely categorically stated that he that Charles Hapgood was correct in his theory and in the fact that the Earth, the crust does slide. In 1958, which was about a year or so after Einstein's death, Charles Hapgood released uh, his book on crust displacement, which today, by the way, is absolutely 100% concurred by all science that the Earth's crust does indeed move, and it does shift. Now that's today, that Hapgood was correct, but in the 1950s and 60s, he was still, um, science, the common science and so forth, absolutely poo-pooed him and said it was ridiculous. Now it is absolutely agreed upon and in... Okay. Is the a, a picture frozen? I think we have got technical a delay. <laughs> all right, we'll be back, folks. It'll get back. It just froze at the moment. Hmm. I think David is coming up with some very interesting theories. Hit me back. Um. Camera's gone off for five minutes now. Oh, that's a shame. I was enjoying that chat. Hopefully, you'll be back, folks. Well, once he's gone, um, now if you study archaeology, there is certain times when archaeology comes back and lets you know. Oh, he's coming back. So, okay, folks, I, I was just ad adding time. David will be back in a moment. I think we've got a, a, a alien interference. I don't think they like us talking. I should tell David that when he comes back on. He's connecting. We're all getting there, folks. You've got to remember, there's a lot of difference. I was just telling folks that we was getting alien interference. I don't think they like us talking. Where was I hope David can hear me. Um, I'm going to invite some other people. Oh, folks, we're back on. 
My God, this is getting complicated. There's going to be two versions of this show. Is there anybody out there? I just said... I just said to people, is there going to be two versions of the same show? But we don't care. We'll get there. I'm recording so, it as uh, well, just as a backup. Uh, anyway. So, basically, where was we? Uh, we were talking about Atlantis. Uh, you were telling us a bit more information. I was just yeah. saying earlier about archaeology. I study archaeology. <laughs> and in archaeology, you find um, there's a lot of places that they've just found recently. You know when we had this massive heat wave over in the UK? And, and all the land dried out a little bit. They found ancient Roman ruins and stuff like that, and possible places where King Arthur was. I mean, you may know of the King Arthur legend. I live near a King Arthur legend. My wife, my wife was born near King Arthur legend. So she used to live in Camford, which isn't very far from Churchill and places like that. Depending where you live, because there's, there's yeah. the Cornish version, there's the Devon version, there's the Yorkshire version, there's the Welsh version, there's a the French version. There's, as you know yourself, when you, when you in, like UFOs, when you read a story of UFOs, I look at them carefully and think, ah, how much is that a real and how much is that a fake? Because there's a lot of fake out there, unfortunately. I've got some wonderful theories, sir. I've read a lot. I'm probably, I'm just probably, I'm a student of cryptozoology, paranormal, UFOs, Bigfoot, British Bigfoot, you name it, I've probably looked at it. Oh, we've got a delay again. We have a delay, folks. Yeah, 
I don't know if David can still hear me. ...again on your video, so I don't know whether or not... I'm... Oh. Is that all right? Can you right, hear me now? Back in again. Yeah, I mean, look, I... Uh, you're, you're, sort of, you're moving, you're sort of very jagged, but I think um, that's just relate, also relating to the distances that we're connecting via. However, um, yes, yeah, look, in all the research, in all the years that I've been researching, and I, and I, and I dabble in so many different areas, including, I say, Atlantis is only one part of it. The ufology side is another part. Um, the, the Jesus story, the, the King Arthur story. And what I've discovered over, over 30 years is, in fact, there is a beautiful connection between everything, between it all. And Arthur becomes Jesus, and Jesus becomes extraterrestrial, and extraterrestrial becomes Atlantis, and Atlantis becomes Jesus. And there's an interconnection, or what I like, an entanglement of the stories. And the more, more that you research, and the deeper you research, as I have, Suddenly you have these Eureka, or a piece of the jigsaw that is relating to Arthur. Sorry about it today, folks. It's good. You put the two together, and for a moment you go, that seems illogical. How can that fit? But suddenly there is a fluidity of, of connection that is just harmonic and beautiful, and you think... Oh my God, it's all interconnected. We just have to break down the barriers between the Arthurian legend that is uh, in itself a, uh, encompasses this and take away the boundary of history and what we know and then it can mould beautifully into the stories of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the Knights of the Round Table. And then that merges in itself into the connection. Because, for example... If you read some of the deepest stories about King Arthur, his incredible battles that he had with mythological creatures and so forth didn't initially or didn't actually happen on this planet. The stories go that, that Arthur and his knights used to traverse to multi-dimensions on a ship of light. And they would then have these incredible connections with other beings and so forth. And they would have conquests and they would have connections with, you know, other cultures and other beings and battles and so forth. And, of course, the story of Excalibur. Uh, Excalibur itself was an off-worldly object that didn't come from this realm or this dimension. So if you take those stories and get rid of the, the probabilities and the traditional mindset of that cannot be, and you take those stories and you combine it with extraterrestrial... It's okay, folks. It's, as I say, it's a delay between New Zealand and UK. I'm, I'm over... God knows how many thousand miles away. And... they in the most... We'll get there. Oops. David's gone for the moment. Hopefully he'll be back. Don't worry, folks, as we were saying. I think this is an interesting debate about aliens and Atlantis and possibly what what could be out there. Um, yes, I think I agree with David. I think there are aliens amongst us. They're probably well hidden. 
You look at, and also you, if you look carefully at fairy tales, I know people are going to think, why fairy tales? When you think about it, when you think about that they're always on about giants or dwarfs or little people. Now, what if the giants were really aliens they didn't understand? Or the the fairies or the, the elves or whatever were also aliens we didn't understand? Or could we be misinterpreting it? I mean, today, we have the giants of today. What do you want about, Mr. Rain? Surely you're talking rubbish. Well, I probably am. But think about it. And whilst I've did, uh, uh, yeah, as I say, we've, we've, uh, think about it. I think this is possible. I might be wrong, but hey-ho. So, 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 as I say, we, we're having problems. Because the aliens and life, the universe, everything, time travel... It's a funny old thing. I want to talk about David about time travel in a minute. See what his theory is, agrees with me. I was just saying about time travel. Now, people look at time travel in, in the sense of like Einstein. Well, I look at, this is my theory about time travel. It may be not new, so this is my theory. I am in, as you said earlier, you are in the future, I am in the past. So therefore, we're time travelled. Officially, we time travelled because I'm talking to you in the future, and then I'm talking to you from the past. Now, people are going to say, "No, he's mad. He can't. That can't be right." But you've, if you think about it properly and logically, we are time travelling, even if it's for that brief moment. which keeps everything tidy and in order and yes as I say um, I'd like to see uh, people watching what can you give a comment about what your theory is about time travel? I would be interested to know. Please let, let, leave a comment. Gina, Terry, Jessica, Martin, Angelique, Tony. I can't pronounce your same name, person. Oakley's. I may have said that wrong, but I do apologise. Can you leave your comments? What do you think about time travel? Take your hand off of me, and we will see what this will do to me. I don't mind going live, because this is what I do. It's not so bad, you see, you do. Do-be-do-be-do-be-do-be-do-be-do. Ho-ho-ho, hee-hee-hee. I'm a laughing no, and you can't catch me. And a laughing no. I love that. I said, ah, I love that. I love that. Oh yes, that's what I was going to mention about EBE. We're getting there, folks. Don't worry, it's the connection. 
Um, yes, I also do a, a podcast called EBE Talking from Iona and Ivana Podstitka. I could never pronounce their last name. Very interesting ladies. Check them out. They come from Czech Republic and they have videos on YouTube. I may have to bring someone else on the camera. <laughs> I think we're having problems. Ah, <sighs> oh. I think we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Now, would anybody else like to come in and stand in for? David, why I'm, I'm talking. Because it'd be interesting to do a talk to someone. Dee, 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 dee. I want a cup of tea. You have said to me. We're back again. These, 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 these aliens are really, they're really up there going, well, I don't want this conversation to start at all. But I'm used to it. With When I do paranormal talks, everything, I get loads of interference all the time. So I'm very used to it. Because it's exactly what we went through as well. I was, I was mentioning, I, I, I talked to a couple of Czech ladies, I don't know if you know them. Ivana and Alona, I can't pronounce their last names, but they live in Czechoslovakia. And he talked to someone called E.B.E. Ole. Have you heard of them? No, I think, I think we have a very severe delay. I, I know what we could do, sign language. How are you today? It might work. I could send a pigeon. I want to do a send a pigeon and then the pigeon will come back and then we can get the the answers. Oh dear folks. I like I like podcasts that go like this. What do you reckon, Gina? And does this happen to you as well? Oh dear. What can the matter be? I got a stuck into the lavatory. Please release me now. I was going to send you a cool picture of my, my um, spider, but he disappeared. No, I think we're losing this connection, folks. This may be it. I'm going to try one more time.
I'll tell you what I can do. If I'm going to get David on the um, Facebook Live. I'm going to see if I can get him on my Facebook and put it on this. It might not work, but hey-ho. I'm just going to see if I can... Alright. Got that one, got that one. Got that one. Got that one. Oh, this technology, eh? Yeah, well, I, can, I think Messenger works fine. Unfortunately, the live connection doesn't seem to be working. The same thing happened with uh, the podcast with Gina in America. Um, Whereas video messenger like this is fine. It seems to connect and Well, I'm recording it anyway, so it doesn't matter. I can, I, I'm using the recording, so don't worry about that. So I, I, I'm still recording it anyway. I was, I was telling people about uh, two people that I talked to called Alona and Ivana Podlisko from Czechoslovakia. And they send me things about Ebe Olay and how he's um, how he talks to an alien that contacts him. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, what do you think about people that talk to alien contacts? Um, well, I mean, look, there's three distinct categories of people when it comes to extraterrestrials. There are those who channel. Uh, extraterrestrial intelligences and uh, which is you know, the, the Arcturians or the Palladians and they actually channel through their physical being. There are also those who talk face to face to extraterrestrial beings um, and there are those who have what I call downloads and the downloads are basically um, information that comes via a subconscious connection with beings um, whereas channeling is a conscious connection and of course um, face-to-face is a conscious connection um, for myself I've had uh, face-to-face connection and I have what I call the downloads and the downloads is downloads of information um, which come at, at any time really it could be um, while sleeping, it could be whilst meditating. Um, I tell people, uh, and they say, they tend to laugh on this one. I say I, I I actually get them when I'm doing the most normal things in life. Like I like I like weeding my garden, and it's whilst I'm sitting there weeding the garden that I'm probably at my most relaxed and open because I'm actually not doing anything else except just connecting with what I'm doing and it's at those times that I find I have the most profound downloads of information 
and it could be in relation to anything but what I do do is I fit it into um, or piece it into my big picture jigsaw puzzle of all things and I often find that it fits in nine times out of ten what I've just downloaded in information connects with the big picture that I'm working on um, so yes I do I mean I, I think one of the most famous channelers of an extraterrestrial um, entity was uh, back in the 1980s and I think it still goes now a woman called Jay-Z Knight in America who channeled um, Ramtha and back in the 80s Ramtha was very big and Ramtha was uh, ironically um, an Atlantean warrior um, and Jay-Z would channel that entity, but there was also a very profound extraterrestrial yeah, um, connection in relation to Ramtha as well. Um, and I know that there are other um, uh, channelers of such beings uh, all over the world. I don't know many of them because it's not an area that I have investigated, well, I say investigated, but don't connect to uh, on a conscious level very often uh, because um, uh, for me, the downloading of information, uh, for me, that's how I come to it, I download. And I know the likes of Einstein, I know the likes of Tesla, they also had a, a connection, um, which they call downloads as well, where they would have these profound equations, or with Tesla it would be he could envisage uh, uh, an energy generator uh, in, uh, from beginning to end in its completed form, uh, which is why he had very few schematics and blueprints because he actually formulated the finished result in his head. So those are downloads. So as we see, there are different, uh, different means of channeling or downloading extraterrestrial consciousness. Um, for me, it's, it's just sitting quietly is when I have the most profound experiences. Have you got, written any books or anything that people can look at or see? Or... So, can you say that again, Mark? Have you written any books that someone, anybody can look at? Or... No, the only thing that I wrote, um, which is not... Well, when, when I, which is a scientific journal, was written in... 1991, um, but it wasn't for public consumption, it was for scientific research, um, and that was in relation to what I call the derailment theory, and very, very succinctly, again, because it was quite a big um, project that I worked on in the early 90s, um, I was uh, looking in New Zealand, uh, and I was living in Nelson, as I said, and Nelson in New Zealand has historically... Um, some of the most um, detailed and documented dolphin and whale strandings uh, than anywhere else in New Zealand. And I was looking into the, the, the areas of that region where the strandings were, and then I was looking at New Zealand as, uh, uh, as a, uh, in total of where all the strandings of dolphins and whales seemed to occur, and I realized that there was a pattern emerging that I had seen before. So I went to another map I had, which was in relation to UFO sightings in mass. And when I superimposed the two maps of New Zealand, 
the uh, strandings and UFO sites superimposed uh, exactly on top of each other. So what that highlighted to me was that dolphins and whales seem to be stranding in the same locations as mass UFO sightings were being reported. So I had to dig a little bit deeper. Now, um, some of the research and connections I had at that time was, and I don't know if you've heard of the... Um, uh, of an author and a researcher, scientific researcher, who's ironically was is a New Zealand was a New Zealander called Bruce Cathy, and Bruce Cathy wrote the Harmonic series of books based upon what's called the anti gravity grid system that exists around the planet. And the anti-gravity grid system is a natural phenomena that the Earth produces through its magnetic field. And if you look on Google and type in anti-gravity grid system, you will see a map that looks similar. Um, actually, I can show you what it looks like because I've actually got images of it to mark. And this just helps you to understand what it looks like. Um, so what I'm going to do is just quickly turn my camera around. And if you have a look... This is the image of what the anti-gravity grid system looks like. Oh, yeah. Cool. So it's a lattice work. It's it looks a like a giant spider web. Lines or ley lines. It's like a spider web, exactly, that encompasses the planet. Now, the planet produces this naturally. In fact, all planets and stars that have magnetic fields produce this grid um, as a natural phenomenon. Now, Tesla knew of the existence of this grid, and he also knew that, this, that these lines of energy harness and actually um, um, contain trillions and trillions of watts of natural uh, electricity, which is what Tesla tapped into to create what he called his free-flow energy system. And if you know anything about Tesla's work, you will know that it's based on Atlantean technology, which they used, which was crystals, harmonic crystals that tapped into the Earth's um, energy system, energy field, and that's what the Atlanteans used to generate their um, power supply. Tesla knew that and he utilized it using the technologies of the day, uh, but he created free flow energy, which was the ability to harmonically connect to the Earth's natural grid system and download um, um, power and transmit it to any other part of the globe. Now, if you know again Tesla's history, you'll know that he was financed by J.P. Morgan. And when Tesla created free flow energy and actually made it work, he was shut down. His generators and factories were shut down. And J.P. Morgan took control of the, um, the, the technology. It is now used, and it is used by um, modern energy um, suppliers. A lot of the um, uh, power um, uh, power generators, like uh, dams, um, um, uh, are designed and built on these harmonic ley lines. In New Zealand, we have. Uh, two of our power stations are built harmonically on these ley lines, and they're actually part of a global man-made grid system, which is separate from the natural grid system of the planet. So it's known as the man-made grid system. And the power generators uh, or the power stations around the globe are harmonically positioned and transmit, download and transmit to this energy uh, globally, and it's the man-made grid system. So what um, I wrote was a paper based upon what I call the derailment theory. And it was simply this, that whales and dolphins were actually stranding 
not on the natural grid lines, but on the man-made ones, because dolphins and whales use the natural Earth's ley lines or energy fields for migration and to traverse around the globe. Dolphins have and whales have in their blubber a substance called magnetite, which is a mineral that is uh, influenced by mag the Earth's magnetic fields. Homing pigeons have the same thing, magnetite in the brain, so do salmon. And so do many creatures have magnetite in their bodies. But whales and dolphins use the Earth's magnetic field to traverse and migrate around the planet. So something was happening to their sophisticated systems that was stranding them. And in the early 90s, a famous, um, well, actually the world's leading authority on whales and dolphins was an English woman called Margaret Klonorska, who theorized that whales and dolphins were stranding due to what was called the gently sloping beach theory, which meant that beaches were not shooting and jutting upright um, as they do sometimes quickly, but was gently sloping upwards until they actually know came up onto the beach so what she was theorizing that dolphins would swim and actually didn't realize that they were stranding themselves because the beaches came out from under the water to the actual land very very gently and therefore they would swim straight onto the land well for me that did not compute um, whales and dolphins have the most sophisticated sonar system ever they could not with that intelligence not detect a gently sloping beach so something else was happening and so when i actually saw that the um the ufos and the um the strandings were the same area it highlighted to me that ufos of course do use the earth's magnetic fields and these energy fields to traverse also so they like a like a monorail system they connect to these grid lines and they traverse around the globe very very quickly which is why people's description of a ufo has always been that they shoot off at phenomenal speeds because they are connected to the system and the the earth's magnetic lines resonate at the speed of light which means anything traversing them can also move at that speed now if the dolphins and whales use the earth's natural magnetic field what was happening that they were now stranding well all the stranding sites have the man-made grid lines running through them so what was happening was the dolphins and whales were simply connecting to these man-made grid system lines and were stranding because the man-made grid lines run across the beaches and locations of these um, cetaceans were stranding so i called it the derailment theory they were simply connecting to what they thought was the natural grid system but it was in fact a man-made grid system lay or line of energy and were derailing because for them this is their source of traversing it's like if you uh, we see clearly because we have eyes if we take those away you know we are disorientated we think we're following a certain pattern but we're not for them they are simply following a line of energy they think is correct but in fact it's stranding them which is why when they try to float out again they try and turn around and come back in because they are disorientated because they believe they're following a natural line of energy which is a natural thing for them to use now i wrote a paper on this and i actually sent it to margaret klonorska in england as i said in the early 90s her theory was gently sloping beaches in 1992 margaret klonorska changed that theory to the possible influence of, of magnetic field 
Russians. Now, that was therefore based upon the work that I had initially done and the paper that I had sent her. So I'm sorry I've gone on slightly long-winded by, by answering your question, which is, have I, have I published anything? I did, but it was only in the scientific community that was directed at the cetacean researchers. And, of course, as I said, the, if you look online now and you type out causes of cetacean strandings, it will say now that the theory is based upon magnetic uh, disrup disruptions to their sonar systems. I like, I like also in your bio that you say you're a photographer, an artist, and a professional singer. I am. I'm all, I'm all of those. <laughs> now, do, do you, what, I, I presume you mean by photography, you take photography of where you live, like the birds and the beaches and stuff like that, because... Well, I do. I've actually got, I can show you right now. This is one of, I love taking abstract imagery. But I also do images, um, and here's one here if you want to have a look. This one's called Eclipse. And there's one I took a few years ago, so if you have a look at um, that, that image there, can you see Oh, that? wow, I like that, yes. Is that birds so fly, flying across? Yeah. Wow. This is, this is not, now, this is not, this is not Photoshop. This is actually a flock of ducks flying across the full moon. Um, which is why I call it Eclipse. It's one of my most famous pictures and one oh. of my biggest selling um, pictures. Um, I, to be honest, I can't claim enormous um, skill in doing that. I was, I was out taking photographs of the full moon and as I was you know, just looking down, I, I heard a quack. <laughs> I literally heard a quack. I looked up and there was a flock of ducks. Now, that is a one in a million shot. Because you can look at a full moon for the rest of your life and not fly, or not get a flock of ducks flying across it. But I just so happened to be in the right place at the right time, and, um, and I got that image, and it's an absolute beautiful one. So I love taking images of the moon, uh, but I also love taking abstract imagery. I also love taking imagery of people. Um, but when they're in their, what I call their natural state, which is just talking or just being or just doing or walking, uh, I love taking images of that as well. However, I do have some images, which if I can find, is um, uh, quite profound. Um, I must actually put it into a better file so I can get to it more, more readily. Um, but these were images I took when I was um, living in the North Island of the country a few years ago and um, was taken um, and shows some extraordinary energy. And I'm just going to see if I can find the image now. So just bear with me as I try and find that particular image um, I take as you can appreciate I take so many images oh I, put, I know it's like oh, yeah. no um, okay I may have to alright now incidentally you may find this one of interest um a few years ago I was going through some powerful changes in my life and I was sitting at home feeling very disconnected and I, with my mind, I reached out and asked that I needed to, 
commit. I needed something, a sign, I suppose, something that could connect me with, um, just give me a sign of some nature. And a voice came into my head and said, turn around. And as I turned around, I just wanted to see this image that appeared on my wall. Oh, my God. You see that? Wow. Yes, it looks like a, this image. a face, a woman's face by the look of it. So that image appeared on my wall, and I sat and looked at it for quite some time, and then I got my camera and took a picture of it. And it stayed there for quite some time, and then it disappeared. But what it did do, I mean, it stayed with that image, and obviously it stayed with me because I took a picture of it. Um, but it has, it was, it was just an incredibly profound moment um, where now I spoke to a woman who's a medium, a very famous medium here in New Zealand. She said to me, that's what's called a guardian. And she said to me, it's extraordinarily rare for them to allow you to take a picture of them. They will simply not allow that to happen. But this one chose that it wanted to allow me to capture it so that I can go back to the image as many times as I want and just reconnect to that moment when I asked or needed uh, something that was going to be incredibly profound and to um, impact upon me um, forever. And, that's, and that did. And so I've got that image. Um, other images I've got of UFOs. We had a UFO. There's a UFO that exists uh, above the home that I live in. And two years ago, March the 20th, 2016, uh, it was a Friday, 8.30 in the evening. You can't get more profound timing than that. In front of my oldest son and his girlfriend, two UFOs literally appeared in front of us because I thought that they were satellites. And they appeared in front of us. Uh, one chased an aircraft, which because we have airplanes that fly over us quite often. One of them tanked behind an aircraft and followed it north. The other one stayed right in front of us, and it has remained there ever since. Now... The fact that I can actually show you an image of it, because of course what happened was we saw it stay, uh, go into a central location near the house or above the house, and it has stayed there, but it's cloaked. It's using what's called a phase differential system, which cloaks it, but it's still there. Now, we had a, a phenomena that occurred here um, a year ago, which is a beautiful um, thing to happen. Um, to the sun, uh, it's called a sun corona. Now, if you look that up, you'll see that it's the sun has a aura around it. It only happens at certain times when the atmospheric conditions are correct, and it creates a, an incredible halo around the sun. Now, I just so happened to be walking and I took a picture, but what I also captured, and I'll show you this, was the actual UFO as well, because it's... Can you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see it, yes. Yes. Now, the halo, I uh, tried to capture it, I'm trying to find a better picture, but the halo itself is surrounding the, uh, the sun, and you can see it in a, in a complete circle around the sun, but, of course, what it also revealed, well, what it disrupted, was the phase differential system of that UFO. And there you can see it right there. Now, I've got another image uh, slightly closer of it, which is that one there. You're, have you got... Um, 
Have you got a photography book you could produce of these photos, or were you keeping them private? David, are you willing to share these with me so I can put them on my blog post? Yes, of course, yeah. That's up to you. I always like to ask first. Now, before we go, because we've had a really good chat, and I'd like to talk to you again one day, when you're not, uh, and we're trying to get a better connection next time. <laughs> um, I'd like to do a unique sign-off. Now, would you like to do your unique sign-off first? What would you like to do? Well, the, the, the Star Trek, the, uh, the, the Spock thing, yeah. Yeah, uh, what's he, te- what did he say? Um, yeah. Live long and prosper. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. I always say to people, as a sub, it's a lovely thing to say, never stop researching, never stop looking. Close your, close your eyes and open your mind to all possibilities. Because by doing so, you will channel and download like a radio. When you have a radio, you turn the tuner so that you can connect to a specific frequency which will download a specific station and a specific style of music. We have the ability as energy beings to do exactly the same thing, to tune into the information that exists out there in vast quantities. All you need to do is open your mind and you will download that information. Sit quietly, download, and create your own picture of life, the universe, and everything. And by doing so, you will connect with other like-minded beings and peoples and have the most extraordinary and wonderful experiences and at a greater level as every day and every week and every month and every year takes us forward. And that's why people are being drawn to this region of Canterbury, where we live, because this is where the emergence of the, the new Atlantis is. Because as I, just to sort of very quickly, when the, when the Earth, when the earth um, crust shifted, um, Atlantis as a central location shifted to where it is now, and New Zealand as a landmass took up its position. By doing so, it also took up New Zealand took up the energy that Atlantis operated under when the poles were in their original location. The poles are now shifting. The magnetic field is changing back to what it was during the time of Atlantis, which is why New Zealand is going through such an incredible energy change um, and why the Americans that they're bringing the technology that they're discovering in Antarctica are being stored here because the technology is turning on. The equipment is turning on and starting to turn on because it's resonating at a frequency that existed 
12,000 years ago. And because the, the magnetic field and the Earth's energy is changing again because the, the polar shift is occurring, that technology is, is starting to turn on again. So this is an extraordinary time to be, but the souls, the old souls of Atlantis are being drawn back to where they once existed, which is right here where we live now. And people from all over the world are being drawn here subconsciously without realizing why. And when you connect with them and talk about Atlantis, everything seems to fit into place. They are being drawn back uh, to a place that they remember, which is the energy and the, and the, the, the land or the new land and the new location of Atlantis. So that's why I say this is the time, this is the place Atlantis is rising. And I'll leave you with that. I'm going to do mine now. Ready? Are you, are you ready? For, I, okay, right. Ready, do you? <clears throat> Atlantis, aliens and UFOs. The men in black interfered, but we persevered. That was informative, and I liked it. We put it I put it on FB, but we had a problem, you see. I also got it on my podcast, you see. So you can listen back, so don't worry, you folks. Maybe we'll be back one day, I think. You like to be with me. So I say for my fellow time traveller, for me to David, goodbye.